Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Jason Janda from Rochester Property Group. Before we dive in, I want to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Jason Janda, the CEO of Rochester Property Group, is a real estate tax attorney and mobile home park operator. After working in various legal and business capacities, both in private equity and within law firms, Jason decided to create his own firm to acquire and operate mobile home parks throughout the Midwest. Jason currently operates 15 communities across six states. Jason, we're excited to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me. Big fan. Awesome, man. Let's start out by just learning about your story and how in the world you got into manufactured housing. Well, I think you touched on a lot of it. My background is, was as a real estate and tax attorney, similar to some of your listening base. I started out in the apartment world, real estate, private equity. We would do syndications on the apartment side. I transitioned from in-house counsel to director of acquisition, so I got a good understanding of the underwriting and what type of apartments to buy. Fast forward, the Great Recession happens. You know, The company I was working for stopped buying during that time. So bounced to a different real estate private equity firm and then eventually to a law firm. At the law firm, I was the low man on the totem pole. And so I was the guy doing borrower's opinions for all the Fannie and Freddie mobile home parks. <laughs> so just dumb luck, I got to see the underwriting and just on a pure real estate finance basis, the returns that these mobile home parks were generating far exceeded the cap rates that we used to buy apartment buildings at. But the debt from Fannie and Freddie was almost the same. So that means your spread was huge. Now, granted, things have changed over the last, call it 12 to 15 years, but that was really the nexus of you know, getting interested in the space. Wow, that is fantastic. So take us back before the Great Recession. You were in acquisitions at an apartment syndication group, right? Uh, during it. So during, during the Great Recession, at the time, you know, we had bought uh, a couple of DPOs, discounted payoffs on notes to buy it directly because a lot of the banks at the time, they didn't want to hold the actual asset because they didn't mm -hmm. want the liability. So you know, it was a much different environment. But so they would, if your property was underwater, they would appoint a conservator and hire a third-party management company, but they still wanted the borrower to own the property just in case that slip and fall happened. Wow. And so it was just such a different world. But at that time, lending was very tight. And so we weren't doing a lot of additional acquisitions. And you know, when your compensation is tied to doing acquisitions, that's not the sure. best situation. Oh, totally. For an individual. Did you did you take anything away from that time, you know, that you implement in your business today, right? Like you said, one of my great mentors, you know, he always talks about how liquidity just dried up. And he's always like, you know, when we first bu started buying parks, he was always like, hey, you need to do certain things with the debt you're taking to protect yourself. 
So I'm, I'm just curious, Jason, if you have you know similar things in, in your business, rules of thumb, if you will, that you implement from your time you know, doing acquisitions in the middle of the Great Recession? I would say yes. And I would say more big picture. One, just understanding that this is all going to be cyclical, right? Over the next 20 years, we're going to have another up cycle. We'll probably have another down cycle. You know, right now we're kind of getting pinched with interest rates being high, but the lack of inventory. So prices are still relatively high. So it's just harder to make stuff pencil. But during 2020, 2021, fortunately, we weren't buying the four cap, four and a half cap stuff because even if we could lock in that low rate for five years, you know, unless you're getting Fannie or Freddie paper and you're locking it in for 10 plus, it's scary because, you know, historical rates are closer to six. You know, look at where we're at now. You know, the five-year, which a lot of our debt is based on, is up. But in addition to that, banks have felt the regional banks have felt the squeeze. So they've expanded their their own spread over the five-year. So you're kind of getting the double whammy. So it's just trying to remember, hey, look, right around under 6% debt, we're basically happy with it. Try to focus on good long-term investments at reasonable prices. And if there's an upside, trying to execute that upside definitely before any sort of debt is coming due. Totally, totally. Tell me about variable rate loans. Do you do anything like that or any bridge debt on on your acquisitions? Because I know that a lot of my apartment friends, they, you know, they've been in trouble recently with some of that stuff, but some of them haven't. Oh, definitely. And same with mine. I have a lot of friends that did, you know, debt yield, a debt fund execution, right? That's what got certain things closed. But when it's variable and when, you know, your, your baseline is 1% or less and your spread is call it a point and a half, two points above that, it's fine. Now, when it's nine, good luck, right? Yeah. So fortunately... We typically do try to do at least five-year debt. We start out, I'd say, a little more aggressive on what our LTV is than what some shops would, but that's because most of the stuff we're buying has some sort of value-add component. Either it's a physical value-add or rents have been below market for an extended period of time. So if we're buying it at 70 75% LTV, Within two to three years, if we execute our plan, it's closer to 50 to 55% LTV. I love it. It's, it seems like you have a very similar business model to our own, yeah. which is you know, buying in the Midwest and buying value add you know, from mom and pops and fixing them up, increasing the income. And that's why we're still able to get deals done right now. You know, I've talked to some groups that they haven't bought anything all year. And I'm like, hey, well, we've done five deals this year, which we feel pretty confident in. And it's all value add stuff that, you know, the going in cap rate doesn't look great. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder, right, to get uh, financing on the going in income that the mom and pops have stated. But, you know, year two, year three, when you look at what we're doing with it, that's where we're able to sell them on the business plan. Is it similar uh, for you in the marketplace? Definitely, definitely. We're seeing the same thing. You know, we're seeing banks tighten their lending standards. Before yeah. pro forma was acceptable. Now it's, hey, show us what's actual. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're also seeing a rise in some seller carry, which helps. Mm-hmm. Not long-term seller carry, but you might get three years or so. Yep. And if that gets us through this rough patch, and if the Fed lowers rates a little bit over the next two to three years, that might be the bridge you need. But yep. similar to yourself, 
you know, look, if you buy it, we're finding supply of new homes and used homes is increasing at a more reasonable cost on a more reasonable timeline. So we can fill up some properties, some communities faster. And so the execution is there. The problem is just the inventory is not there, right? So we're pounding on a lot, lot more doors, a lot more cold calling, all of that sort of stuff. Totally, totally. Jason, what do you think is the toughest hurdle to overcome in mobile home park investing? Oh, gosh. Um, sure, there's a lot. I'd say from the passive side, it's just getting comfortable with the actual operations, right? And understanding the difference between a park-owned home versus a tenant-owned home versus, okay, hey, this is the underlying property we're investing in and understanding the potential pitfalls, I guess, would be the best way. So coming to mind is like a wastewater treatment plant. You buy a small park with a wastewater treatment plant, that can be very expensive to redo. And so if the community is not 7,500 spaces, probably want to avoid that. You know, And there, there are definitely exceptions to that. But just becoming knowledgeable about what you're putting your money in, I would say, is, is you know, it's a learning curve. Totally. To piggyback on that, you know, what are the type of communities that you're targeting? you know, currently with your portfolio? Like, is it majority tenant owned homes or do you like park owned homes? You know, or will you buy with private utilities? You know, maybe just give us some color if you don't mind. Definitely. definitely. Um, we're value guys, right? We're a value shop. So unfortunately it's an all of the above. It depends. If we have to take a lot of park owned homes, there has to be value for us. And you might fix those up. You might sell those off. Um, you might do somewhat of, of, of trade, and this is a little counterintuitive. Someone's paying 650 rent, home and lot rent. You might sell them the home cheaper, but bump the lot rent a little bit and lower their overall payment. They're happy with that, but you've just capitalized that increase in lot rent. And so I'd say, but to answer your question, um, you know, well water we're fine with, strongly prefer public utilities. You know, the, the best would be direct build all utilities. You can't always find that. Tenant-owned homes are easier, right? Because even the park-owned homes you have, you know, someone's going to move out. You're going to have a downtime. It depends how quick you've got a rehab crew around there that can bring it back and then rent it out again. And unless you're in certain markets, you just have to think, is this something I really want to deal with versus selling the home off and have it 100% tenant-owned homes? And then at that point, you have a much more stable property and you have fewer move-outs and move-ins. Totally agree. Tell me about your operations. Do you guys use a third-party manager? Do you manage in-house? How's that set up? We have an affiliate, which is a property management company called MH Communities. We manage in-house. Um, you know, When I started, like a lot of people, did the management all myself. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is, as I'm sure you can appreciate, that's just not the best use of time, right? There's a better use of time in focusing on acquisitions investor relations, focusing on the financing, the day-to-day -day property management of tenant complaints, especially park on home issues. That's just not the best use of time. But what I have realized is if you're not buying the largest properties, then doing it in-house makes a lot of sense. If you're buying properties that are big enough, you can farm it out to a third-party property management company. But if you're buying a 50-space park, they might have a de minimis monthly fee and that might be a large percentage of your overall rent. Yeah, totally agree. And even then, 
right? Like we've bought, I think three properties this year that were third-party managed by, you know, I won't say who, but it's a big, uh, a big nationwide management company. And they're running on like 55 to 60% expense ratios. And I mean, our entire portfolio is under 35% expense ratio. So it's just, you know, they're just less efficient, right? Compared to in-house uh, where you're just, you know, you care, you're, you're, you're vested, right? You're, you're, you want that property to succeed. So that's interesting. So are you, you're hands-on, you're, you have your own operations, affiliate company, and you're managing the projects and things in-house as well with that, right? Definitely, definitely. And that, and the other thing that you can do if you're managing it in-house is we try to leverage technology and whatever platforms we can use as early as possible just to streamline, right? If we can take man or woman hours out of the equation by automating and paying a fee for that, it usually makes sense. Totally. No, totally agree. What's the average lot number size of your communities? You know, we target the 50 to 90 range. 50 to 90 like range. That, that's big enough where, you know, it makes sense. We can get decent financing. But as you know, once you get over 100, 150, there's so many competitors that what's the cap rate you're able to buy that at? You know, if you've got an amazing acquisition team and you pick it off, great. But can you consistently find the big ones that haven't been touched by everyone? Sure. The bigger groups. Totally. And you were in acquisitions for the apartment deals. So I'm taking it, you do it acquisitions now. How do you guys find your deals? Um, it's an all of the, the above approach, right? Everything from cold calling, direct emailing, direct mailing, um, you know, paying old finders fees when possible, because typically the fully brokered package, you know, we're not winning those. There's people with cheaper capital elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And even if it's not cheaper capital, they have a shorter horizon, so they can probably hit their IRR return. Whereas, you know, we view ourselves more as stewards of capital. We're we're in it for the long term. You know, our goal is to provide consistent long term returns quarter after quarter. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm assuming you know the best opportunity or strategy that you're seeing right now is is in value add deals, Midwest. Do you have any other color that you can add on, like where you think the best mobile home park investing strategy is right now? I see a lot of opportunities developing in the South. So mm -hmm. when, you know, call it six, seven years ago, not a lot of people were buying in Alabama, Louisiana, but the returns there are similar to what I saw in the Midwest when we started in the Midwest. I feel very strongly different. Like, I feel strongly yeah. against that. And, and okay. let me tell you why, you know, I, cause we've explored some markets and now if you're in a big market, right, in yeah. Alabama, in Mississippi, that's like, you know, the capital or something like that, you know, it, it's hard to go wrong. But in any sort of like secondary tertiary markets around there, uh, I've just seen just a, a low quality of, of tenant, ultimately, like yeah, very yeah. low income, like the very, you know, if you look at the best places, like the, the, the low uh, median income. And then also one thing that I picked up on that you know, it, it just is an anomaly or something. But if you look, I'm on a repo list where all the mobile homes in the country, I get like a list yeah. of all of them. And every single month when I get that email of the list of mobile homes that are being repoed, it's like Mississippi and Alabama are like the number one and number two states where all those homes are getting repoed. And it's like, I just, 
And I would hate to get into that type of a market where it's like, geez, you're trying to increase rents, you know, to be able to maintain the property. And what if you're just not able to, because it's just such a low income area. So I'm sure there's nice pockets, but that's been my experience. No. And and that makes a ton of sense too, because if you're dealing with a tenant base that only has so much income and if they're buying, call it home X, which is financed by company Y, you, you know what those interest rates are. They're relatively high. So the slight, the slightest change in that person's lifestyle, right? They might, their car might break down. They might lose a job, what have you. They're losing a home. But I, I guess, let me just clarify why I'm saying this out. What I've seen in the South has been operators who haven't touched rents in a very long time were still based on really low monthly income. Rent can go up by a large percentage base. Now, granted, again, it's sector specific, market specific. So if you're in tertiary Alabama, don't think it's going to work, right? <laughs> but, totally, if, totally. but if you're in a better location in Louisiana and you know, Guy X has been operating it forever and the rent is 175 still because that's how it's always been, mm-hmm. right? And the market dictates that, you know, could go up, not quite double, but close to it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not the type of shop that does that, that comes in and just, you know, underwrites it like that, comes in, doubles it day one but we'll make those improvements and slowly walk the rent up to market. And as and what we- What does that look like? What is slow, like how much are you comfortable with in a, in a given year? You know, if market is double, you know, the one- It really lot. depends on the underlying customer base and it depends what the overall dollar amount is, right? So if you're buying $200 rents, that percentage jump might be higher than if you're buying $400 rents in a market where market rent is 650. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to pin that down, might be 10%, might be 15%. But usually that's after coming in, you know, one of the main things we see a lot, I'm sure you do Hold too. On, is- so 10 or 15%, if, if you got a market that's 400 lot rent and current rents are 200, you're only going to go 10 or 15% year one on increase. Oh, no, rents? I'm talking, I was talking more of a $400 lot rent going up okay. 10 or 15%. So that's $40 to $60 because that's where it starts to have a meaningful impact on the underlying customer base. Gotcha. Right, your tenant gotcha. base. But if, if it's, it's 200 200- going to 400 market, what's a you're, fair you're, year one number? You're doing that faster. Um, I, you know, I can't think of the last one we did, but again, we do it slowly. The reason we do it slowly is that's going to be a 20-year hold for us, right? Sure, sure. And so our partner base knows that and we're underwriting that and we're slowly getting there. And then the other thing that's happening is you are going to have some turnover. Those new tenants are coming in at market. Sure. Right. Yeah. Totally. With the infill homes and everything. Yeah. They're coming in. But what we're also trying to do, because it's a balancing act. You also don't want to increase it enough that someone says, Oh, you know what? I'm taking my home out of here. Sure. Right. Because the value that you lost on that versus the value you've increased in the capitalized lot rent. You want to make sure they they work together. Totally. But I yeah, guess I think to answer fair, your question, it's I getting think, harder. Yeah, I think with with a good amount of capex that's been dumped into a property, uh, you, know, you know, new roads and and taking care of the deferred maintenance from the mom and pops, trimming the trees, you know, fixing the cracks in the sidewalks and things like that, new mailboxes. I totally think that you know a fifty to seventy five dollar increase in year one is is warranted. Yeah. You know, yeah. but you gotta you know you just gotta do the work, and that's where a lot of other operators. 
have not done the work and they just come in and jack up rents $200 in year one and they give everybody a black eye. So, and they give us all those phone calls, right? Those tenants start calling, Hey, can I move in yours? Exactly. Yeah. Jason, what mistakes in mobile home park investing have you made that uh, our listener base can learn from and I can learn from? Okay. Well, early on, I can still tell you before I even did my first transaction was paying some of the out-of-pocket due diligence before finishing the standard due diligence that we requested, the, whether you call it Dropbox box, however it's getting sent to you. But I still remember the first one, we signed up a phase one, we got a survey, all this money was going out the front door. And then lo and behold, we realized we get everything back. We didn't get the bank statements. We finally get the bank statements. And this particular operator wasn't collecting the rent he was. And so he only gave us the last three months because he was doing deposits of oh, his own money. Man. into the bank by this point i'm out you know five or six grand right Mm. i've got all this all these materials on a park i'm never gonna be able to close i brought it to this that's tough man How, how did you how did you get educated on mobile home park investing you know i don't think a lot of us started thinking hey let's stay in the MH space, right? Like that's a great space for us. You know, it was a transition from apartments. So I had a decent knowledge and decent training and underwriting and that kind of side of it. Right. And, you know, from there, it's just the jump of, okay, what's the main difference? So if you've got a mobile home park, that's all park on homes, very similar to an apartment building. Mm -hmm. You have one that's all tenant on homes. It's much easier to operate than an apartment building. Totally. And then, you know, just getting that, um, you know, but did you other, go to like the MHU boot camp and Frank and Dave boot camp or anything oh, like yeah. that? About a decade ago. Okay. So yeah, yeah, I think like most operators that I've had on the show have gone to that and, you know, kind of cut their teeth and kind of learn from that. And, yeah. and I, I was telling someone the other day that like, you know, when that thing came out, they give you the 30 day due diligence handbook and there's like 50 checklist items. And I was, you know, I was going through our due diligence on a new deal and it's like 350 checkpoints now, you know, like we've yeah. learned stuff from every deal. And, you know, made, because we made mistakes, right, from, you know, X, Y, and Z, you, you name it, we've learned from it, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's a good boilerplate kind of seminar, right, weekend boot camp to, to go kind of cut your teeth. Definitely, definitely. I've actually reached out to Brandon to see if they still do it. I think they're just starting it back up, I think, at Frank's house. But, you know, you go, you also go through it back in 2013 and said, okay, you have to buy it if it's a 10 cap. You can't buy anything less than that. So that's how I started. I said, okay, I'll buy all the nine cap stuff, right? Because I think even back then I I could go get five and a half, six percent debt. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, your cash on cash was huge. Yeah. Any other mistakes that kind of come to mind that you think we can share with the listeners? You know, I can tell you one that I can think of is letting the tax tail wag the dog. Um, there obviously accelerated depreciation is a big thing in our industry. And so having that accelerated depreciation and coming up with that as the excuse for buying a certain property that might be just on the edge, I can tell you that was one of the ones where if you look back, we probably shouldn't have bought it. We may do, but as you know, just like whether it's a, your kid or whatever, one kind of more difficult project or problem takes up, took up maybe 35% of our time, right? Yeah. So you had one, call it 50 space park, and that was a third of everyone's day. It's yeah. just not worth it. 
And that, that's the same thing. An investor asked me, oh, why, why aren't you doing development, you know, grand up development of, of mobile home communities? I said, well, there's lower hanging fruit right now in the marketplace that, you know, we, it is easier to scale with compared to like you know, learning something from scratch that I've never done before. You know, I'm sure there's opportunity in certain markets to build ground up, but, you know, the time and effort that would go into that versus what we already know uh, is just a better use of time. You oh, agree? definitely. You know, I'm sure you've got a bunch of other people on the podcast. I've heard some as well that dive into RVs. That's just still just another thing that, you know, I still see enough opportunity on the, in the MH space, at least in the niche that we operate Yeah, that I'd rather, you know, continue to do what we know very well rather than to start learning something else. Totally. So have you guys done any deals this year, Jason, in, in 2023? Yeah. You know, we do a couple every year. We have a very tight sieve. So we start with a big funnel and then not, not a whole lot gets through it. But, you know, we've got another one closing on the 31st of this year. You know, we pick off, it's kind of tell a- us about, Tell us about them. You know, the deals Okay, so it's like size. a hub and spoke model. You know, so if it's a bigger property, we will take a stab at it almost in any of the 12 states in which we target. Mm-hmm. But- if it's a smaller property, we'll still take a stab at it if it's close to another one, especially if we've got a good manager there. Totally. Right? So we can bolt on. Because what we've come to notice is if we've got about 300 sites within about a couple hours radius, then we can operate those very well. Then we can support a maintenance crew that can rehab homes. We've, we can float people. We can borrow different trades. right? So if I've got a great electrician here, I can send them over here, plumber, et cetera. Uh, that that's definitely the model of growing out in a certain state. But, you know, if it's a, a new state and it's a 35 totally. space park, it's probably not gonna probably work. not going to scale. Yeah. Do you guys do one-off syndications or do you have like a fund that you raise money through? So we typically do one-off syndications. Again, my background came from the apartment space. So I try to gear it in the way most optimal to raise money. And so that turned into low fees, higher backend promote, alignment of interest, and then being very transparent on quarterly reports, right? Here's what gross income was. Here's operating expenses. Here's our NOI. Here's debt service. Here's cash flow. And based upon those, this is how much we can distribute. So then there, that was one of my frustrations as an LP. I'm an, I'm an LP in about a dozen apartment syndications. And a lot of times it's a black box where you're getting a certain distribution. You don't know what, how it's based. You don't know why you're getting yeah, you're it. Lucky. One day. Yeah, you're lucky if you're getting apartment distributions right now. I mean, I've heard horror stories. Oh, definitely, definitely. Especially, you know, state specific. You know, we do operate in Illinois right now. We will not be operating in Illinois in the future. But there are certain states that make it very hard to operate. And yeah. so learning that, that's another big mistake. Yeah. New York is a big one. Yeah, we, we made a mistake and bought one there. And, you know, they, they judge, we go and meet him every 90 days to try to evict the same tenant that's, that hasn't paid since we bought the park. And he just keeps extending because they have kids and it's a family. Yeah. He, he doesn't want to kick them out on the street. So he just keeps extending. And it's been over a year now that we were not able to evict this one tenant that literally wasn't paying the previous owner. Oh my gosh. It's we, crazy. we had it spread at an Illinois park. So you'll appreciate this. 61 sites. And we had over a hundred thousand in delinquency. Oh my goodness. Wow. It spread like wildfire because a couple people realized, hey, you don't have to pay rent. They can't kick you out. 
Jeez. And so the longest person we had, I think, was 26 months. Oh, my that goodness. 26 wow. months without paying rent. We couldn't evict them because there's an eviction moratorium. And then mm -hmm. even when that was done, there was such a backlog at the courts. And then even when you finally got your court date, the judge was basically telling you, hey, go negotiate something. I don't want to do yeah. this eviction. It's so wild. And I will say, until it ran out, the rental relief programs in Illinois, because we own properties in Illinois, and the one in New York, until the money ran out, they were writing big checks. They were like, yeah. hey, we'll cover the whole last year and would send us in $10,000, $11,000 checks to cover you know, the past due balances for several tenants. So we, we went down that road. But when the money ran out, it was like, hey, you know, there's nothing left because they can only go back to that program so many times. I think it's like once or twice and then and they're just dead. Yeah. And, and that was a mistake we made in Missouri. We bought a property during the pandemic. We, we liked it. Price was well, right, everything else. But a lot of people were paying through government assistance, the rental checks. Mm. And so you couldn't really gauge. And we were fine. We were getting a lot of money. But then when it stopped, a lot of the rent stopped. Yeah. Oh, man. And so then you had so many evictions. And then you're rehabbing homes. And then literally you're taking out a new loan just to, you know, Rehabbing the get, property get rather than yeah. doing anything yeah. else. That's crazy. Jason, what do you think are the most important things that passive investors, you know, we're talking LPs, need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? Obviously, doing your due diligence on the sponsor. Understand, you know, what the return parameters are, what the fees are. You know, I'm all for the sponsor getting paid and paid well, but there has to be an alignment of interests. Right. The sponsor shouldn't be made whole just on an acquisition fee, finance fee, construction management fee. You know, I woke up on Thursday fee and what mm -hmm. have you. So just making sure that you understand the fees, there's a back end for the sponsor. And then also just hopefully getting some sort of reporting. So you understand, even if a property is not doing great, just being in the loop. Mm -hmm. Right. Hey, not doing a distribution this quarter. Um, and being consistent because with it, X, right? Y, you know, Z. instead of just, you know, an update this month and then nothing next month and then you're back on it, you know, being consistent and setting expectations, I think are huge. I think consistency is the, the right word almost throughout the board, right? Whether it's operations, whether it's dealing with just so everyone has a clear expectation of what's going on. Totally. Jason, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? Oh, gosh, I, I, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Um, but you know, again, like we touched on briefly earlier, I'd say tenant owned homes, streets are done. Um, you don't have trees hanging over homes, ideally direct build and collections are good. And how many lots? As many as you can buy. As many as you can get in, right? <laughs> and you're yeah, buying, a, buying it at a 10 cap, right? Exactly. Exactly. But no, realistically, you know, there are you know, there's so many legacy owners still out there that there are great ones. And even the ones that have the deferred maintenance we've touched on earlier, it's understandable because if you're operating this for 30 years or 20 years or however many years from the folks that we've bought in the past, stroking that big check to fix, you know, we spent 60,000 at one property recently just to do the culverts, right? So we had better drainage. You know, that was never going to get done by the prior owner. Yeah. Yeah. They're mom and pops, baby boomers. They're, you know, using it as a retirement vehicle. And 
yeah, it just doesn't make sense. So I, that's why I think it's good that there's new blood coming into the space that's reinvesting and, and, and aligning interests. A lot of people don't get this, but like the nicer the property looks, the better debt you're going to be able to get on it. So it's a win yeah. for investors and tenants, right? Like Definitely. to make it look nice. Jason, what do you think the future of mobile home park investing looks like with you know the direction the economy is going? Obviously, higher interest rates are here. There's possible recession talks still. What do you think that looks like? You know, we have those conversations often. I still see it as being a great avenue for long-term wealth accumulation, right? You've got tax benefits on the depreciation side. You've got solid cash flow usually. Even, you know, from the more core assets, you can get good cash flow. Debt, you know, my hope is you buy a property a little bit below where it was, you know, a year or two ago. And then you're happy with that purchase price because in three to five years, you'll be able to, to refi it, right? And sure. get somewhat more reasonable debt. But you hit the nail on the head. You know, I've had that conversation where certain people have told me, hey, well, I don't know if I'm going to do this next one because I can get 5% in my money market, right? I can get 5% here. You're, I'm taking a risk with you. You know, you've delivered solid returns, but- how do you overcome that? Because I've received that same objection. How do you overcome that at this point? Because now it's like five and a quarter. Yeah. So, so my response was, okay, but look at the last 20 years. Let's say you just left it in your money market. That was 20 years. What would your return have been? Look at those same 20 years in any of the mobile home parks we owned. You would have had your money multiple times over. right? And in addition to that, you'd have the depreciation because a lot of the people that you're dealing with and everyone's dealing with that are investing you know, they've, they pay a decent amount in taxes so they can use some of that depreciation to help totally. shelter some, some of that active income. Totally. No, good points. What's the biggest threat to mobile home park investing? We're, we're losing a lot of supply and we're seeing a lot of consolidation, right? Mm. Especially, you know, whether it's, you know, mom and pop sells to an operator that buys 20, 20 to 40 communities that 20 to 40 is then sold to the next bigger fish. Those fish are then sold to the next bigger fish, et cetera. And so we're seeing that, but you know, again, I still think we are far less consolidated than almost every other real estate asset type. Totally. And so I think there's plenty of opportunity. Totally. Totally. Jason, thank you so much, dude. I mean, tons of golden nuggets on here. If listeners would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way for them to do so? Get me at LinkedIn, phone numbers on mhcommunities.com or Rochester Property Group. You know, we're always around. And if there's questions we can answer, you know, happy to. And again, thank you for your time. Big fan of the podcast. Yeah, no, real quick, before I let you go, what's one last bit of important advice that you would give an interested uh, passive mobile home park investor just before we sign off here? You know, a lot of people buzz through a PPM because it's got a lot of risks. It's got a lot of other stuff, but just make sure you understand, okay, hey, what's the return I'm going to get? How is the sponsor going to be compensated? And then to me, the biggest one that used to frustrate me is just having that conversation with the sponsor. Hey, what sort of financial reporting am I going to see? I just want an idea of what's going on. Um, you know, We provide basic financial reporting every quarter along with three or four I don't want to use the word anecdotes, but updates of larger items that have happened over the quarter, just so instead of as an investor, you feel like, oh, I'm a partner in these, in this property or in this fund. 
Cool. I love it, man. Jason, thank you so much again for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. All right. Take care. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.